Welcome to a series of talks about objective consciousness, an objective universe, and an objective way to awaken, expanding upon the works of George I. Gurdjieff and Russell A. Smith. In this podcast, I will narrate Mr. Smith's presentation to the attendees at the first All and Everything conference held in Bognor Regis, England, on February the 22nd, 1996, a conference that was organized to introduce Mr. Smith's first book, Gurdjieff Cosmic Secrets, to the world. Let's begin. Lecture host. It is my pleasure to introduce Russell Smith, who will be speaking on the laws of world creation and world maintenance. Russell. Thank you. Let me begin with a quote. It is necessary to notice that in the great universe, all phenomena in general, without exception, wherever they arise and manifest, are simply successively law-conformable fractions of some whole phenomenon which has its prime arising on the most holy sun absolute. And in consequence, all cosmic phenomena, wherever they proceed, have a sense of objectivity. And these successively law-conformable fractions are actualized in every respect, and even in the sense of their involution and evolution, owing to the chief cosmic law, the sacred Heptaparaparshanok. When I began this work in the late 1970s, I was very fortunate to run across P.D. Uspensky's book, The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution. From the first moment I read that book, my inner world changed. And... As a result, I went out and bought every book written by Uspensky, which led me to Gurdjieff, after which I bought every book written by him. I spent the next three years reading every day until their work became mine. Cautioned by Gurdjieff to not believe anything unless I could verify it for myself, I immersed myself in their work and tried to do just that, to verify everything. Then, after something was verified, I diligently applied it to myself in hopes that someday it would cause me to awaken. Fortunately, it did. That is, something appeared in me which gave me an impartial observer to the world, whereafter my investigations intensified. During those investigations, I put my mind on the laws of world creation and world maintenance, and as such, I discovered that there was a common structure behind all things. However, up to that point, the only structure 
I had been shown in various books and writings was a symbolic one. There were three forces. Shock octaves, symbolic enneagrams, and four fundamental points, etc. But there had to be more. There had to be some mathematics behind it all. So, I searched within the clues I had been given, trying to discover those mathematics. Gurdjieff's quote about everything being simply successively law-conformable fractions of some whole phenomenon which had its prime arising on the most holy sun absolute gave me a place to start. So, I scoured everything I found looking for those fractions because if they existed I wanted to find them. Then, in one of my many readings of In Search of the Miraculous, I finally saw something I had overlooked. Uspensky had, nonchalantly, mentioned the diatonic ratios, that is, the mathematics of the octave. However, that mathematics was not in his other charts and diagrams. Instead, they were symbolic. Just charts and diagrams, with no mathematics supporting them. However, when I snapped to the mathematics of the octave, and realised that if I was able to apply that mathematics to Espensky's charts and diagrams, as well as to everything else, I might be able to see something more than just a symbolic representation of the world. So, I began to calculate octaves of every imaginable size in order to see what I could find. Then, one day, while I was browsing through the dictionary, I stumbled upon the geologic timescale. It went from 600 million years ago to today. It had all kinds of eras and periods, each with its own proposed time of existence. Examining the structure, I began to see the proportionality of octaves within those eras. So, I began to calculate octaves based on their proposed lengths. To my surprise, the periods within those eras almost perfectly matched my calculations. It was incredible. The geologic timescale revealed oscillating octaves which descended and ascended according to the diatonic ratios. However, that discovery ended up in what is called the box. Back on the property, we have a storage shed, and in it are many boxes. Each one is filled with charts and diagrams, which have not been mathematically verified as being true. Until they are, they will remain in the box. Only truth 
which has been verified, can show us how to step out of the darkness and into the light. Not surprisingly, that truth can be found in the laws of world creation and world maintenance, giving us a common vein of objectivity which applies to us all. We are all different. We had different childhoods. We went to different schools. We acquired different beliefs. And as such, the content of our inner world is different. But amongst that diversity, there has been one common thread. We are all made from the law of seven and the law of three. That being said, it occurred to me, if I could objectively define the law of seven and the law of three, that knowledge would not only enhance my work, but the work of others as well. So, after finding the diatonic ratios in In Search of the Miraculous, I began to calculate octaves of every size in order to discover that objectivity. As a result, I found many things. Yet, I was hesitant. Something in me said, you could be speculating. You could have made those things come out in the way you wanted them to come out. That is, manipulated them in your favour. But fortunately, in one of my many readings of Beelzebub's tales to his grandson, particularly in the chapter The Holy Planet Purgatory, I realised that Gurdjieff had given us a dissertation concerning the creation of the universe. A creation which came about because our endlessness was forced to change the law of three and the law of seven. After which, I began reading the Holy Planet Purgatory chapter again and again, in hopes of discovering how those laws were changed. I must say that that endeavour proved to be of some concern. Why? Well, when the students who lived with me came home from work, they found me, just as they had found me the day before, sitting in my chair, with papers scattered all across the floor, on which were scribbled various calculations, charts and diagrams. For three days, I hadn't moved, eaten, or slept. Then, on the fourth day, they let out a big sigh of relief, because I had eaten, showered, and had a poster-sized diagram hanging on the wall, which allowed them to stretch the fabric of the universe, and create the diatonic world in which we now live. I must say, if you, yourself, 
have not created the diatonic universe. It is a fun thing to do. After that, the process is quite simple. Because, once you create the diatonic universe, the rest unfolds all by itself. It begins with understanding the changing of the law of seven. In front of you are ten diagrams. Diagrams that allow you to visualize what I am now going to share. Note, to all who are listening, those ten diagrams can be found at thedogteachings.com in the description of this podcast. Let's begin. When I began my studies into the mathematics of the octave, I saw that it doubled. It went from one to two and had notes at the ratios of one, nine-eighths, five-quarters, four-thirds, three-halves, five-thirds, fifteen-eighths, and, of course, two. I looked at the mathematics of the notes and compared them to the mathematics of the forces. When I did, I saw that the three forces had the same mathematics as three of the notes. And, after reading again and again Mr. Gurdjieff's dissertation as to how a greater change had to be made in the law of seven, it became obvious to me that, at some point, the notes and the forces did not have a common mathematics. In order to reveal that unknown mathematics, I tried to undo what had been done. Previously, I had been told that one stopinder was lengthened, one was shortened, and a third was disharmonized. So, I tried to unlengthen, unshorten, and undisharmonize them. That is, if I could discover the mathematics of the structure before the laws were changed, and then do what our endlessness had to do in order to bring the law of three and the law of seven into common alignment, I would not only have my finger on the pulse of creation, but I would have absolute confidence in all that followed. Something so concrete that my understanding would no longer be built on speculation, conjecture and guess, but rather on real mathematical truth. Then the question became, what was the mathematics of the structure before it was changed? To figure that out, I had to go back to before creation. I did so by examining the symbol of the Enneagram. When I did, I quickly realized that the Enneagram had two mathematics. Its oneness was divided by three, and its oneness 
was divided by seven. Dividing its oneness by three gave me a pure recurring decimal, 0.333, which represented one force. When I added a second force to it, I got 0.666. And when a third force was added, I got 0.999. Then I noticed, after placing those decimals on the Enneagram, that the triangle symbol connected the 0.333 to the 0.666 to the 0.999 at the points 3, 6, and 9. But the oneness of the Enneagram was also divided into 7. That math produced the pure recurring decimal, 0.142857, which could be seen in the line of supervision that goes from 1 to 4 to 2, to 8, to 5, to 7, and then back to 1. When I realised that both mathematics were on the Enneagram, I said, wow, the three forces reveal the mathematics of the thirds, and the movement of the line of supervision reveals the mathematics of the sevenths. But that posed a problem. The notes in an octave were not at sevenths. Only the line of supervision was. Instead, the notes were diatonic at one-eighth, one-quarter, one-third, one-half, two-thirds and seven-eighths. Then, why is the math of even sevenths on the Enneagram. That is, in the 1-4-2-8-5-7-1 movement of the line of supervision. I postulated that Gurdjieff was given us a clue as to what the law of seven looked like before it was changed. To figure out if that was possible, I placed the forces at the thirds and the notes at the sevenths. See the creation diagram. When I compared the structure of the thirds to the structure of the sevenths, as shown in the top half of the diagram, I instantly saw the problem. The separation of the forces at even thirds did not align with the structure of the notes at even sevenths. I saw that one force did align with the top dough, but the other two forces fell in between me and Fa, and So and La, respectively. After which, I realised that the three separated forces had to be at the thirds. That is, they had no other choice. We know from atomic theory that three electrons, which all have a negative charge, will orient themselves equidistant from each other, because likes repel.
and as such, they will form an equilateral triangle. Just like the three forces in an Enneagram form an equilateral triangle as well. And thus, those forces will never align with a structure that is in even sevenths. With that knowledge, I understood why the Absolute had to make a greater change in the Law of Seven. Because he could not alter the Law of Three. The forces had to be at thirds, whereas the notes in an octave did not have to be at sevenths. So, in order to achieve common alignment, I simply lengthened one interval. That is, I pushed the interval that was between the third and fourth deflection further away from the absolute, thus lengthening its law-conformable successiveness. That interval is called the Meccano coinciding Mudnell in, after which I shortened another. That is, I shortened the last interval by pulling the note T closer to the absolute, thus facilitating the commencement of a new cycle of its completing process. That interval is called the intentionally actualized Mudnell in. This lengthening and shortening caused a third interval, the interval between so and la, to become disharmonized. That interval is called the Harnell Aut. Animations of this process taking place can be seen in the first two animations on our website at thedogteachings.com animations. The far at three-sevenths gets pushed into alignment with the force at one-third and the la at five-sevenths gets pulled into alignment with the force at two-thirds. As a result, the fabric of the universe got stretched and rumpled, causing the notes in the even-flowing law of seven to become the diatonic notes we have today. Later on, I discovered that the word diatonic was Latin and meant to stretch, which was most appropriate. When the structure went from flowing by even sevenths and became diatonic, a very interesting thing occurred, which brings us to the second diagram. See the diagram labelled wholeness between the notes and wholeness of the octave. When the universe was flowing by even sevenths, there was a wholeness between the notes. Why? Well, before the forces were separated, they were all at the same place, and as such, they all moved together through the same structure, the octave of even sevenths. It was only after the forces were separated and began flowing from different places that the law of seven 
had to be changed. After which, when the structure became diatonic, the wholeness went from being between the notes to being in the octave. The diagram shows that when the notes were displaced, their movement into the interval of even sevenths precisely reflects where they ended up in the octave. It is as if how much they moved became what they are. For example, in the wholeness between the notes, the note so was moved halfway into the so and far interval and is now halfway in the wholeness of the octave. Furthermore, if we compare the other notes as to their movement into the interval with their position in the octave, we will find that they are identical, which, again, is quite remarkable. And we've just begun. The question then becomes, if one force, the force at Do, is calculated as an octave, shouldn't the other two forces, that is, the forces at La and Fa, also be calculated as octaves? Indeed, they should. So, I calculated them as octaves as well. See the diagram with the labels, the affirming octave, the reconciling octave, and the denying octave. I now had three diatonic octaves, whose interactions could easily be witnessed. Additionally, the occurrence of those three diatonic octaves in a structure that descends is precisely where those three octaves must occur in a structure that wishes to ascend. Thus, shock octaves were born. See the diagram with the labels the second shock octave, the first shock octave, and the affirming octave. Continuing further, Gurdjieff tells us in Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson that everything establishes for itself its own law of seven and its own law of three, which means that the universe did not stop at three octaves. Each new octave contained two additional forces, which were, themselves, octaves. And as such, those octaves each contained two additional forces. Whereby, a universal cosmic weave of forces and their octaves was created. See the Universal Cosmic Weave Diagram. Nineteen outer octaves are created by this process. Actually, fifty are created. But they only occupy nineteen places, because some of them were created by two different octaves. That is, one octave's la, its five-thirds, is another octave's fa, its four-thirds.
That is why I call the structure the universal cosmic weave. As a result of its creation, another amazing structure is created, called Pascal's Triangle, which is produced whenever two mathematical constants are applied to everything produced within that structure, such as our five-thirds and four-thirds. See the diagram called Pascal's Triangle, Octave's Structure, or research Pascal's Triangle online to see the structure which ensues. Then, I noticed that some of those octaves were related. That is, they had one or more of the same vibrations as a progenitor octave. And as such, I colour-coded them and gave them common names. After which, I noticed that the order of their creation precisely matched the order of the filling of an atom's orbitals. See the atom's orbitals diagram. When I took chemistry in high school, they told me that the orbitals of an atom did not get filled in order. They started to fill in order, that is, 1s, 2s, 2p, 3s, 3p. But then it stopped. The 3d orbital was not the next orbital filled. Instead, it jumped out and filled the 4f orbital before filling the 3d. Why? Well, that is the order in which the 19 outer octaves are created. That's why. It is truly amazing that the order of creation of the 19 outer octaves precisely matches every jump and as such reveals the order in which the atom's orbitals get filled. Next, I place those 19 outer octaves in a diagram that revealed their numerical name, their mathematical name, their family relationship, and the order of their creation, which was in diagonal rows. See the diagram, called Pascal's Triangle. Those diagonal rows of creation produce something even more remarkable, the Fibonacci series. The numerical series of 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, 55, etc. Which underlies everything. See the diagram called the Fibonacci series. We can actually watch the Fibonacci series emerge by adding up the numbers in Pascal's triangle that are in the diagonal rows. I must say, the more I studied the laws of world creation and world maintenance, the more I found in perfect accordance with them. And as such, my discoveries did not end. Marching onward, the mathematics of octaves produce more than just an outer structure. A certain unfolding 
also took place within the octave as well, which I called inner octaves. For example, Gurdjieff indicated that in the ray of creation there were four fundamental points, the absolute, the sun, the earth, and the moon. And between those four fundamental points, there were three octaves of radiations. See the diagram labelled the totality of 24. At first, I was sceptical. And I said, OK, Mr. Gurdjieff, you told me to not believe anything. So why should I believe you? Then, I realised that his four fundamental points occurred at a mathematical halving within the octave itself, at 24, 12, 6 and 3, or at 1, 1 half, 1 quarter and 1 eighth. And, since octaves have a propensity to double or half, those halvings would indeed become octaves, and as such, they would create three octaves of radiations. Just like he said. Then I thought, having verified that the whole, the half, the quarter, and the eighth produce three inner octaves, I should be able to calculate them as well as the nine inner octaves which occur within those. And, when finished, I would have more than just a symbolic representation of the universe, but a mathematical one. So, I did. Amazingly, after calculating just two scales of inner octaves, I already saw that the inner octaves revealed the quarks in an atom, the harmonic duality of existence, RNA, DNA, our four lower centres, their parts and parts of parts, as well as our two higher centres, and how they can be attained. Mr Smith continued speaking for another 30 minutes or so defining everything created by that structure. However, due to our time constraints, I will end this podcast after I share with you a few questions from the attendees, as well as their reactions. Here is how it ended. Mr Smith speaking. In conclusion, I have four wishes. The first two wishes are for you. Firstly, I wish for you that you will immediately begin an objective study into the laws of world creation and world maintenance in order to verify for yourself everything that I have shared with you today. And secondly, I wish for you that you will continue to study all that Mr. Gurdjieff gave us. The next two wishes are for me. Firstly, I wish that I will live a very long life. And secondly, I wish 
that I will be able to share these truths with others until my dying breath. That being said, thank you for being here. I am very fortunate to be in a work that can change one's being. Are there any questions? Attendee, I feel the need to congratulate you and to state how much I admire what you have done. I say that because I have already read your book. Russell, thank you, sir. Another attendee. I too appreciate what you have done. I haven't read your book yet, but I have purchased it. And I plan to read it as soon as I get home. From what I have seen so far, what you have discovered greatly surpasses most of the rituals found in our work. Russell, thank you for recognizing that and for buying my book. Another attendee. After hearing you speak with such eloquence, clarity and authority, I am convinced that you must be from another planet. Because if you were from this planet, you would still be in the dark, like me. Audience laughs loudly. Russell. Thank you for letting me know. I will have my DNA checked. Audience laughs hysterically. Truth be told, I was very lucky. Having an objective teacher would have been an advantage. But, since I did not, I had to try to awaken on my own. Fortunately, after years of effort, something in me did, which allowed me to discover a simple mathematical structure behind everything in the universe. A structure which, when learned and understood, lets everyone walk out of the darkness and into the light. Besides, it is hard to argue against two plus two being four. Same attendee. Brilliant, Mr. Smith. Just brilliant. Thank you. Another attendee. What you have shown us here today is without a doubt not only the first but most comprehensive representation of the work I have seen to date. I am just flabbergasted. Another attendee. Personally, I do not have this concern, but others may. As such, I would like to hear your response to the following. Mr. Gurdjieff intentionally buried these ideas. How dare you come along and dig them up? Russell, I will say two things. If you think that way, please forget everything I told you. Audience laughs. However, if you are seeking something objective, please remember it all. Another attendee. I noticed that you spoke for over an hour with no notes. 
given the depth and clarity of your presentation. Doing so, without notes, is quite impressive. Russell I have notes. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, and do. Audience with great laughter and applause. Lecture host. That sounds like a great place to insert our break. After all, we are already applauding. Thank you, Mr. Smith. We very much appreciate what you have presented. Audience continues applauding even louder. That completes today's podcast. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions that you would like answered, please send them to information at thedogteachings.com and we will endeavour to answer them and perhaps even include them in a future podcast. Or, if you would like to purchase Russell Smith's book, The Blueprint of Consciousness, a 520-page hardback, which is also available for PDF download, or learn more about the subjects and exercises that we have been exploring, you can do so by going to thedogteachings.com. That's T-H-E-D-O-G-T-E-A-C-H-I-N-G-S dot com. There, you'll be able to listen to other talks, obtain diagrams, animations, supporting videos, and much, much more. But most importantly, you will have real-time access to the materials we are discussing. That's thedogteachings.com Goodbye. Until next time.